0: Hello and welcome to the new episode of Inside Fertilizer Analytics. Today we're going to be looking at phosphates and I'm very glad to have Clara Lloyd join us. She's senior manager in our consulting team responsible for our phosphates research. Um, and Tim Evans is joining us. He's a senior analyst and uh, works in our phosphates team as well and looks at some particular areas of interest which uh, we're we'll going to be talking about today. We are just in the process of publishing, as we record this, the new issue of Processed phosphates Analytics. And we have the next issue of Process Rock Analytics coming out the end of August. Um, so all the research behind the discussion today is very fresh in your minds, Claire and Tim and your team. And so uh, I'd like to really dig into some of the key issues and the market for, for these products is very interesting uh, and we'll have a really good, good time for a discussion. Firstly, to introduce myself, I'm Tim Chain. I'm the head of fertilizers and agriculture um, at Argus. And uh, we cover, of course, raw materials and finished fertilizers, and phosphates covers neatly both of those categories. Um, and uh, we're really glad to have this opportunity. It's been a while since we did one of these podcasts, and um, hopefully, this will be the first of a new series. Um, so, looking forward to it. Let's start with the, the demand side where everything starts. Clara, let me start with you really. I always ask about India and these podcasts so important in phosphates, but over the last six months, they've been exploring again, some plans to become more self-sufficient in the production of phosphates. So I know you've looked at this for the latest issue of analytics. What's the latest that's going on in terms of how they plan this path to self-sufficiency?
1: Hey Tim, and good to be back doing another podcast. It's good to chat all things P. Yeah, I mean, India, as you said, it's, it is the most important market, really, when we come to sort of merchant trade for phosphate, it is a bit of a bellwether. But India has been pushing more and more towards, or trying to push more towards being less reliant on that external market. And there's two initiatives, really, which have been bubbling and starting now to make some real traction. The first is the production of what's being called nano DAP, which is basically little tiny liquid form granules, pellets, like bath pearls of DAP, basically which will be produced domestically if Co has a factory at the moment, which they are starting up. And that will, they hope, will be able to really replace imported DAP, potentially conventional DAP of about 9 million tonnes per year, which is very significant. And the other one is SSP. You know, India's always had hugely underutilised SSP capacity, but it, it's there. You know, and it is you know, very low cost to produce. its e is P2O5 plus sulphur, in essence. So it takes out that urea element. There is that lack of concern about oversupply of nitrogen. So there's that as well. So there's two real paths that are being pushed. I would say maybe is a word to use because the government and private companies are kind of both moving towards these as ways to make P2O5 more self-sufficient in the country.
0: Yeah, these are both interesting topics. Um, the nano depth must, of course, follow the the, uh, the the discussion and the promotion of nano urea, which has been something we've been discussing for a couple of years. Uh, they, they're very different ways of reaching this. And the goal of being more, uh, more independent of global markets, but how effective do you think they're going to be? Are they going to change the landscape of Indian imports or the global DAP market in any significant way?
1: I think starting with nanodap, I I do think it's too early to tell. I mean, the producers have very big ambitions. You know, they hope to have 100, I think it's 180 million bottles produced across 25 and 26, which could, you know, technically, if you convert it, be, as I said, 9 million tonnes of conventional dap. But operations have only just started in one plant. I've not, shall we say, heard the best feedback on it when it comes to its um, efficiency as a product. So I think it's too early maybe to call that on the nanodap side. SSP, we have seen that it is some of these measures have worked. You know, they've temporarily or been trialling adding a subsidy on the freight for SSP to get to farmers under the nutrient-based subsidy scheme. And also there's been sort of re-education programmes where the government has been holding them with um, the Fertiliser Association of India to re-educate farmers to trust SSP a little bit more so. And we did see last year record consumption of SSP in India at about 782,000 tonnes P205, which is incredible. It's you know, an increase for 150,000 tonnes P205 of SSP. when considering it's a product that hasn't been necessarily trusted by the Indian farmer is significant. But we are still seeing these quality control issues. In May, the government revoked 112 SSP production licences because the quality of the product was not good enough. So for us, we see, yes, SSP... This sort of, you know, seven eighty eight hundred thousand tons P205 consumption level a year will not necessarily drop. It's there. People are trusting it. It's, it's increased significantly. But if it'll grow, again, we are very skeptical of that. I think there's a lot of re-education needed to, to really utilize it to that level. So for us, you know, we maybe have hit this seven eighty eight hundred thousand tons level. We expect growth will continue, but at the general rate of P205 consumption across the board in India. We don't necessarily see it being able yet to supplant or supersede the DAP, general standard p two hundred five consumption path. But they're interesting ones to keep an eye on, and we definitely will be for the long term.
0: Do you think there'll be uh, any trend in terms of SSP imports to India rather than domestic production?
1: No, I mean, the whole of this initiative is to become self-reliant and produce it domestically in what you've got. Capacity so underutilised in the country, even 780,000, that leaves over a million tonnes of capacity untouched.
0: Great. Got it. Thanks. Tim, turning to you, welcome to the podcast. We want to stay on the, on the theme of demand, but move across to non-fertiliser demand. And the topic that comes up all the time with our customers and is very exciting is LFP batteries. So the, the, the obvious question, and the one I've had many times from people is, what is our view of future P2.05 demand for LFP batteries? And, and how are you deriving that forecast? What are the key
2: assumptions behind our view? Well first of all pleasure to be back and yeah look forward to getting new series up and going again. When we look at LFP's really we're looking at it as a added market rather than something that will come along and sort of displace P2O5 demand and the general expectations is on a 2023 basis we're expecting somewhere around 370,000 tons of P2O5 demand generated from the from the LFP market and in short by the end of the decade we're expecting it to rise to about 2.7 million tons a year and and breach above 4 million tons by 2033 which is sort of our our forecast period at the moment so it's not the largest amount of p205 relative to the rest of our industry but it is definitely not insignificant amounts and when it comes to how we are deriving this p205 demand it's almost entirely generated from Electric vehicles and energy storage capacity. So, I, I just want to be clear that the, these these demand estimates are not taking into account the potential for growth in the electronic uh, equipment sector, for example. But simply, we're taking forecasted expectations of um, electric vehicle sales across different regions, and we are estimating a penetration rate of LFP batteries. Among the different battery chemistries. And we are using EV sales as a proxy of, of production. And this gives us overall the number of units sold. And with the estimate of how much of that is going to be LFP, uh, we can derive a, a P205 demand from that. And we take a similar approach to the energy storage sector, where we come up with a overall forecast of expected LFP capture of that market. And it gives us a nice P205 demand expectation from the sector.
0: Is most of this demand expected to be, well, is it currently in China? And do you think that most of those numbers you've mentioned by the end of the decade and into the 2030s will that be in China too? Or do you see this being a more global pattern in terms of
2: consumption? China is by far, in a way, well ahead of the curve of the rest of the world. China's both domestic production of LFP, I think it's you know, over 90% of global uh, LFP production currently, and its domestic electric vehicle growth is outpacing all other markets by a fair way. The the expectation is that Europe will trail behind second, but it's still significantly lower than our expectations from China. The US is also expected to to grow in the sort of the third largest market, but there are significant challenges. Europe's got a, a supply chain in its infancy still, so even though there are projects expected to come online in the coming years for um, lithium-ion batteries and LFP batteries and more energy storage, and there's also policy sorts promoting electric vehicles in Europe in particular, but it's got a supply chains in its infancy, and it's going to rely on a lot of raw materials from China regardless, uh, at least for the, uh, the first few years of, of that LFP development. So I'd say China's dominating by a long way, and we think it's going to stay that way. But it's, it's not to say that these markets don't have potential uh, elsewhere in, in Europe and, and the Americas. America has a bit more of a, let's say, cultural hurdle to achieve. Petrol cars and, and diesel cars, and and the vast distances make it slightly more difficult to implement. And and the way that their politics is orientated with the uh, states separated everywhere, so it's a little harder to implement sort of a concentrated unilateral policy. Whereas in Europe, it's it's much more easy.
0: Yeah, there's much more ambitious plans in Europe to electrify. And I guess that links into the demand for the batteries. How much of mm-hmm. the of the phosphate market w- would LFP demand represent? I suppose the real question is how will this LFP demand affect More general P205 pricing, do we think?
2: Yeah. So, you know, in in our latest analytics, we've done a little bit of a special focus on LFPs. And we did some price analysis, sort of looking at the relationship and of the value of P205 in in DAP and using that as a benchmark, looking at its corresponding relationship to the costs of LFP cathode materials. And the conclusion we've sort of come to is the cost of of LFP production um, seems to be almost entirely driven by uh, lithium and lithium carbonate. We tried to look at the incremental rise in phosphate prices as its production cost rose, and we found that because such small amounts of P2O5 get used per kilowatt hour production, it has quite a small impact on, on the production costs of the LFP producers. But it doesn't mean that the P2O5 isn't price sensitive. You know, when we looked at it on a P2O5 level in, for example, phosphoric acid um, or or DAP, it it does seem relatively price sensitive. So what we're seeing is a sort of skewed risk towards fertilizer producers where the added demand from LFP and because it's such a small incremental cost on their overall uh, cathode materials, they may be more willing to pay a premium price for, for the phosphate, which may have uh, an impact upstream and, and, to, and to across sectors. But we're also thinking that given it's such a small market, we have to take into account, you know, the expected demand levels are some five to 8% of the overall P205 market. So it, it's really not picking up and although it's not insignificant, it's not some majority of the market here or anything. So we don't think it's going to significantly affect the P2O5 value on a proportional basis as much in the fertilizer market because we don't think those premiums will translate or potentially it won't it won't translate as much back upstream or across sectors.
0: Right so I guess there could be some disruption coming from LFP demand but the overall uh, level of P2O5 for phosphate fertilizers sounds like it is unlikely to be affected certainly in terms of long-term trends. What about the interest that LFPs is generating for investments in you know from investors? Particularly purified phosphoric acid. Do you think there's going to be uh, an impact on where investments are made? Will this redirect interest away from traditional phosphate markets? And is that going to affect fertilizers in that fashion through rediverting supply and development?
2: Yeah, so we've sort of since the beginning held the view that LFP's demand for phosphates isn't necessarily going to redraw and sort of displace existing supply. What we think it's going to do is it's going to incentivize new added value alternatives that, you know, for example, you might find projects that would have struggled to f- receive financing or come online to service the fertilizer market, especially in the phosphate rock world. But given their properties and their advantages for servicing purified phosphoric acid production, they may see more interest because it's economically advantageous to produce purified acid with certain rock deposits if they can get the premium Uh, From the PPA markets, but can't get it from the fertilizer markets, for example. So, what we're expecting is that there's going to be certain ore deposits that that may, and potential projects that may receive a bit of a push and bring on new additional capacity that will be directed to the LFP market. But it's not going to be in really in competition with uh, the fertilizer market because you know they were always sort of intended for that market anyway. Makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I guess there's always in the background there's always the crucial role that OCP plays in terms of managing investment profiles for the view, the view they have and the, the position they have for global markets it would, I guess, supersede any impact of LFP demand and the volumes going into that sector.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, let's turn to Sarah again, talking about supply and just running through some of the key developments that you've been looking at for the next analytics services. I, I guess an important thing to Assess is the impact of Eurochem's announcement that they're considering shuttering Lefosa. How do you think that's going to impact the market balance?
1: Well, I think with Lefosa, they've announced that they are considering its closure. We've been quite brutal. I'm going to be honest in our numbers, and we've shut it indefinitely and already. Um, In our short term balance for our outlook, we we haven't included exports more than their stockpiles of DAP, which they've had for the last four months. The plant really has been suffering. They struggled to get raw materials. They have struggled with freight. They have struggled with not sanctioned sanctions. Um, So for us, it's, it's been basically out of action already for 18 months. And the European market really has survived without it. Probably what has helped that is the demand destruction for DAP in the European market. So really the loss of what maximum 70,000 tonnes a month hasn't necessarily been a problem. And, you know, the US did used to take some Lifosa product as well. But when the duties on the imports were put on, um, you know, Lifosa is owned by Urochem, which is a Russian company. So those exports, even though they were coming from Lithuania, stopped then more or less anyway. So I think that's not for us necessarily something we see as much of a disruption in the short term. Maybe we could consider when demand returns to more normal levels in Europe, it could be something that need that may help push prices a little bit you know, give a bit more support in that sort of first few, I don't know, could be months when that does return to normal in a couple of years time. But it's not material. I think what's the thing we're considering now would be the interesting part is if it's bought. So I know Eurochem are looking at one of the options being finding a buyer for it. But the, this plant has been basically out of action, more or less for 18 months. It's not going to be in very good health. So it's going to be a big project. You're going to have to restart it from cold. And it, as I said, you know, nearly 18 months of being cold. So it's a big project. It could be, you know, we consider it might be if it is bought stripped for parts, is an option we've heard that has been floated, or just completely repurposed for a different product. You know, it does produce at the moment DAP or NPS, largely DAP, but will something else be produced? You know, the European market itself is something that's evolving to look at more targeted, more specific, more streamlined fertiliser and fertiliser technology. So DAP may not be the route the root for it, but for us, it's been shut for such a long time. We don't see it impacting the market much, but we have, as I said, been very brutal and we've shut it with the immediate effect and indefinitely, just from what we see as its current status and existing position.
0: Interesting. So it's out of our balance already in terms of S&D. Staying on the closure theme, I'd like to ask you about rock um, moving upstream. Uh, we know that Nutrient's White Springs mine is set to close in the early 2030s. I know you did some some analysis on this in the second quarter of the rock analytics service. But thinking about this and also the future of many of several, maybe even more than five or six other U.S. mines being considered or perhaps in jeopardy, How do you see the future of phosphates production in the U.S., you know, within that framework of that much rock production being considered or possibly looking at being closed?
1: Yeah, I think this this for me, I'm a bit of a rock nerd, as people who work with me know I love it. So this for me was when we were looking at this in more detail last quarter was really interesting. So to put some even bigger numbers on it, we expect by 2037, 61 percent of U.S. current rock capacity will be offline. You know, that's nearly 20 million tonnes a year of capacity, which is crazy for any market to see it to be lost, you know, 60 odd percent. This will result in the US being about nine or 10 million tonnes per year short on phosphate rock for fertiliser production. I mean, we saw with mines coming to an end in Canada, same with nutrient. A couple of years later, they closed process phosphate production. This could be a very realistic option for some phosphate producers, unfortunately, we could see plants close just because if you can't source the raw material competitively, why are you going to stay open? Another factor which we have to consider as well for the US is obviously a greater reliance on imports, but that increases your production costs potentially significantly. It also leaves you with that U.S. farmers paying again possibly some of the higher, higher prices going for domestically produced product and already affordability has been of such a huge concern to the U.S. the last two years and we've seen consumption and imports applications drop significantly. They don't really necessarily need to add fuel to that fire. Another thing we're thinking as well is we could see a switch in production of products to maybe be less P205 heavy. That is another option we could see or generally just more imports of finished product. You know, you've got maybe, you know, more of the impact will be seen in the medium term. We'll start to see mines starting to close from late 2020s instead into early 2030s. That is when it falls in quite nicely with the US duties. Um, Coming to an end on Russia and Morocco. So it is the time when the cheaper producers can come back into the US market potentially. So that could be a saving grace. But really, for me, there's very little, I would say, at the moment, expectation of any mines which lives are in jeopardy because they need a mine life extension to be. Granted, Caldwell Canyon in Idaho, for example, has had its um, decision to allow a new pit to be open reversed because of environmental problems or environmental concerns, shall we say. Uh, Mosaic has two very significant mines down in Florida. It's been trying to get environmental permits for, for the best part of five years and they have made no moves, no, no progress so far. So really, the US could be in that position as said, will be. We could either see plant closures, repurposing of plants to produce lower P2O5 intensive products, or really, we will just see greater imports of rock and greater imports of finished product. But maybe that greater import of rock side of thing will make domestic furts in the US less competitive and the end product imports come up. But for me, I think the option of more mines opening is a very, very slim one.
0: Given that the, some of the issues are to do with permitting and the environmental impacts of Traditional phosphates production. Do you think there's a chance of a technology revolution? You know, I've heard of moving from sulfuric acid basis to a hydrochloric acid technology. Do you think do you think that could be anything that dramatic could happen, or would those technologies just not be competitive economically?
1: Well, funny you should ask that. There is one mine which started production. Well, mine I call it mine in inverted commas, which started production earlier this year in Bone Valley in Florida from a company called Mineral Development. This is processing. It's using secondary recovery, so it's processing tailings from a mine, which I believe stopped mining, I want to say best part, about 30, 35 years ago. So the tailings ponds are a huge environmental concern, mainly in Florida, which is why Mosaic in particular is struggling to have new permits because people don't want the tailings ponds. We saw one, I think it was last year, that burst underground contamination and water contamination. But this secondary recovery, they're pulling out 1.2 million tonnes a year of rock just from a tailings pond. This is not only producing rock, it's clearing up sort of the mess left by rock, historical rock mining. So if that technology can become even better and be more widely adopted, that could be a saviour. We're helping the environment and you're getting rock into the bargain as well. So that for me, I think on the, the rock side is something that could, if utilised and developed further, be one thing that could help the US. But I said only well, one company are doing it at the moment, but there uh, yeah, could be options.
0: Yeah, well, waste recycling would obviously be very popular environmentally, and uh, if it's economic, it could have big prospects. Talking about supply and thinking more about the investment side and expansion side, the uh, I guess some of the biggest news or the biggest prospects for new investments are in North Africa. So, talk us through what's coming up, uh, what you see on the horizon for new capacity in that region.
1: Ooh, I'm going to leave the big guys till last and it's OCP, you know, obviously the ones you can't not talk about. But there's two other, I would say, countries who've got some interesting things going on. First, I say Tunisia. These guys have not had the best run in the last sort of four or five years, as we've seen with strikes and the Arab Spring and what have you. But GCT are looking to open a new TSP line at um, Mahinda end of next year. It's going to be TSP. It's an interesting one to see. You know, The TSP market is... One that OCP themselves are exploring and exploring thoroughly and promoting the greater use of TSP. So, to see a new line come from the guys next door is an interesting one to to happen. They will have the flexibility for SSP as well, but they're likely, they said, to produce TSP. So, that's one interesting one from a company that's been pretty quiet, I would say, over the last few years. Next, let's say we've got Algeria. There's two projects there which are interesting. Somifos, the rock miners, they are looking to expand their mining. They have grand ambitions to really up their export game you know they're rocks of pretty decent quality they're very well cemented in the supply chain so they're looking to expand 2026, they've been pushed that back slightly for their expansion. And the other one is ACFC. This is the big project that's been in the pipeline for a while, which has Chinese backing, which dropped out twice. Now they have Chinese backing again. This is going to be a 6 million ton per year fertilizer project, of which about 4.5 million tons will be phosphate-based fertilizers. And it's rock all the way through to end product. And when the new financial Chinese partners were found, still pretty skeptical of this project, because it's $7 billion worth of investment and that's just for the rock mine, the ammonia plant, the urea plant and the phosphates plant. That was not including the infrastructure investment required, which is a further $2 billion, because these guys are planning to basically service the African market. They want to build a rail structure going from Algeria, basically as far in as they can go. and. We were, I would say, slightly sceptical of this happening because that $2 billion for the infrastructure, where is it coming from? But they've got government backing for this infrastructure and the government are willing to pay. So that has made us a little bit more positive on the project and also they're making the final investment decision by the end of this year which is another interesting one the only concern they have is uh, sulfur they will have to rely on a third party for that and import it so to find someone who can help service you know, 4.5 million tons per year of phosphate production with sulfur is no mean feat so that's one hurdle now that is left seen as the financing and that two billion dollars of infrastructure is there but it has the potential to change a bit of the face of African phosphate supply. and Because the partner's Chinese, there will be a certain percent that's exported as well. So it could really put Algeria on the map for finished fertilisers and not just rock on the phosphate side. So that one for me is pretty interesting to definitely watch what could be quite rapid developments from the start of next year. But OCP everyone's favourite. jaw phosphate hub. We've had four units and then we have been, well I've been waiting since 2018 for unit number five to come online and it's here and it's ramping up. They say two more will come this year, six and seven, which we think could be possible. We hold them in our firm forecast at the moment. Eight, nine and ten are now the question. They are pretty committed, OCP, we understand, to having 22 million tonnes per year of phosphate granulation capacity by 2027, which would mean those three units would ramp up 25 to 27. We do still have them in our firm forecast, but we are expecting their startup to be fluid, and we are maybe expecting we'll have to push them back. Again, you know, we are also hearing OCP is skewing them towards TSP production. Export numbers for TSP are not necessarily backing that skew at the moment, but again, you know. Farmers can be re-educated, consumers can be re-educated. So this is something, again, we're closely monitoring. The other interesting one, I would say, is Mazinda. So OCP have this project that they announced very quietly in their annual results for last year. And we've been doing a bit more digging into it. And this is going to be a 1.5 million tonnes per year fully flexible on a P205 basis production, granulation capacity across, of course, DAP, MAP, TSP and NPKs. But we again expect it really to be skewed more towards TSP. But we're not keeping this in our firm forecast as it has been quite quietly announced. It has been quite quietly so almost slipped under the radar with very few details published openly by OCP in their own documents. We are you know, hesitant to put this in our firm forecast. And the timeline, again, is very flexible. You know, there's a possibility of 2026, but we are expecting delays and rock the same. Originally, they were going to go up to 66 million tonnes a year of rock capacity. Now they're going to 77 and they have a new field, which has always been there ready to roll. But they are looking to develop that to come online by 2027 with 7 million tonnes per year capacity. So we're keeping that out of our firm forecast now as well, because, again, we don't see where necessarily that rock will pretty much go. There's a lot of rock projects not just OCP coming online in the near term so really to bring an extra you know 11 million tons on top of your 66 you have to get to planned by 27 we think seems a little bit ambitious and with the fluidity and flexibility we've always seen of OCP deadlines and targets we think that's a safe a safe bet for now shall we say
0: yeah absolutely I, uh, like you say i already mentioned, we will see OCP being flexible on how they manage the supply increases in line with what they think market requirements would be Um, Lots of capacity coming on, though, so uh, good to hear the latest updates, and and we'll keep tracking those developments, I'm sure. Uh, Tim, turning back to you, I'd like to have just a a quick discussion about policy and especially duties, countervailing duties. The U.S. duties on Russian and Moroccan products have been important. How have they changed? I, I think I heard that they were revised down recently. What's changing and what's the impact on the market of those changes?
2: Yeah, well, some some have gone uh, down, some have gone up. In May, the US essentially preliminary raised the import duties imposed on the Russian producer Fosagro to 53%, and that's up from the lows of 9%. But they also simultaneously dropped the duty rate for Moroccan phosphates from 19, well, basically 20% down to 15, 14.5%. And if, if we're looking at Fosagro, The changes can largely be attributed to a review or recalculation of the advantages provided to agri, And that's whether it be through government subsidies or favourable loan rates or raw material benefits, particularly around natural gas, which essentially the US has determined that it's sort of distorting fair supplier competition. And when we look at the original duties, they caused U.S. and DAP and MAP imports from from Russia and Morocco to to decline. But FOSAgro's duties were low enough to allow sort of manageable netbacks. And we saw something around 200,000 tons of MAP shipped into the U.S. in 2022, despite the duties. So this revision brings FOSAgro's duty rate in line with the other producers. And if they are finalized, we're essentially expecting all business to halt. So on the Russian side, what does it do? Well, it sort of roughly puts 100 to 200,000 tons of Russian MAP supply, and jeopardises it for US uh, supply. The changes to Morocco: the duty reduction is largely driven by a lower calculated raw material benefit for OCP after the company um, filed an appeal for a review. And you know, we we may see some more opportunistic shipments to the US, especially if there's a sort of sufficient premium in the US over other markets, but we don't really expect it will reintroduce significant trading levels between the US and Morocco. The lack of trade that we've seen between them since the duties appears to be driven by strategy rather than you know, economic viability. So even with the slight reduction in duties, OCP may not be incentivized to return supply to the US at the levels we've seen. So ultimately the duties uh, revision leaves the US with somewhat reduced sourcing options. And because the US has a tendency to sort of carry minimal stocks from season to season, I guess it leaves the US slightly more exposed on a supply side and more exposed to some price volatility, especially if there's some, some buying during a narrow window. I think the main takeaways are if the duties are finalized, we're going to see no more Russian tons and it's unlikely to really pick up Moroccan levels. So I think the increased share we've seen from Saudis, the Jordanians, and you know, a plethora of smaller contributors have picked up and, and will likely stay that way for the duration of the duties, which is until I think 2026. So I think overall it's definitely going to have some, some sort of impact, particularly around trade routes, but we, we don't think it's posing a uh, significant. Risk to to U.S. suppliers just going to create a slightly shifted and more diversified trading flows and and potentially create some volatility during ah more narrow buying windows. Let's say
0: really interesting how the those those duties have changed trade flows and the pattern of where product is moving. Uh, you mentioned volatility, so let's finish this discussion about the future view of prices and uh, perhaps looking at firstly at the short term. the Markets have been bearish recently, but Map has been a little bit more firm. How do you see the map market looking for the rest of 2023?
2: Where to start? I'll, I'll split this into really eastern and west of Suez markets. Phosphate prices globally, both east and west of Suez, are, are generally expected to decline across the rest of this year, despite some periods of stability or, or even support that we are seeing recently. I think conditions in Europe and US uh, are expected to be more sensitive to market balance evolutions, which we'll get into. But But in general, if we look at east of suez first i think you know that prices are largely being driven by india at the moment and they, and they actually have been for, for for a while now what we're seeing is delayed demand emerging from alternative Major consumers and importers, which has really concentrated a lot of the demand to to India as the only major outlet for DAP suppliers, and it's creating asymmetric imbalance between price pricing power for or negotiations for Indian buyers, and Indian buyers are basically continuously held or maintains significant imports of DAP uh, across the year even during unseasonal periods and what it's done is it's allowed them to build up significant healthy stock levels and the government subsidies uh, for DAP uh, have been held at a sufficient level which has basically allowed them to retain healthy margins on both a production level, importer level, doesn't even matter which way you're you're producing whether it's imported rock or acid. and what this really done is it's basically distorted the incentive for choosing a particular route and made all routes of procuring DAP rewarding. So we're seeing very strong imports as they build their stock levels and it's giving the Indians as the only major outlet of DAP a lot of power to push prices lower. We've seen China come back as well with uh, a bit of a vengeance on exports to India particularly in the last quarter and because of how much availability there is the indians can be slightly more selective and and push prices lower so we see little opportunity for that to to, to change going forward you know they've essentially covered their demand for rabi uh, and we're expecting you know deliveries to to keep going but you know they're going to want to push for lower prices with Pakistan's demand ha- hasn't yet emerged, Bangladesh's tender has seen some some delays and, and complications, and there's not many uh, traders who seem too interested in, get, in getting involved, so in the overall private tender from Bangladesh came out a lot lower than what suppliers were hoping for, so reduced alternative options is kind of driving the downward prices. Uh, on, the, on the DAP side. And we've just got continuous outlets that really uh, need to find somewhere to put their product. And then Europe, uh, we are expecting demand uh, across Europe to, to come back. And this will provide some some level of price support on the, on the higher end of FOB prices. We think this will create a bit of a divergence, a bit more of a spread between uh, the low and high end of, let's say, Moroccan FOB, for example. The idea being that Europe's going to come back, which will help support some prices, but the overall price momentum is still down. And then if we look to Western markets and in the US and and Brazil, Brazil's imported again strongly throughout the year. They've got healthy stock levels that are now moving through the systems, and it's difficult to see how Russians, Marcos, and Saudis are all vying for the remaining tons in the last push to Safra outside of. Temporary price support, which we're seeing now, we think that that will dissipate fairly quickly once September comes and application begins, and we think prices will begin to drop as as demand tapers off. The U.S. is slightly more sensitive. We alluded to them earlier because they now have reduced sourcing options; they have little carryover, so they're potentially more exposed to some some price volatility, but. We think this time around compared to last season which saw a spike in prices during the narrow buying window we've got slightly different conditions in the us both for map and dap we're going to see buying over a more consistent period we believe affordability has now reached a point where it doesn't really reward buyers as much by waiting for lower prices so we think we'll see that that more consistent buying which will then reduce the potential for sort of a, a narrow buying window which would alternatively offer some price support. So I think the main takeaway here is prices are probably going to decline. Uh, well, we we see prices declining further across the year, but we see the increments in which they're going to decline as being slightly reduced. You know, we're seeing some more stability in the raw material side of things, and we're seeing some general resilience emerge out of some suppliers. And with China then returning to service to domestic markets later in the year, we expect suppliers will will have the ability to be slightly more uh, resilient towards downward price pressure. So still declining prices, but we think at, at a slower rate.
0: Thanks for that sir. review of the regional differences of pricing, but it does sound like continued bearishness to the rest of the year. Clara, how do you see things moving beyond the end of the year into 24 and, and, and the medium term? Is there a trend towards the more bullish prices or is the market likely to remain depressed in that time frame? I'll
1: be as speedy as I can, because so I know we've said a lot. There is still, I would say, woe for producers to come next year. And we are looking at prices still declining on an average into, into 2024. You know, we're going to get back on an average, you're thinking of Morocco DAP fob basis, into the 400s, the very, very low 400s once again. But after that, we do figure until about 25, 26, a period of relative stability. I mean, part of this is fed by some of the stability in the raw materials markets. But also, we are going to see the market finally hit a point where consumption has recovered. We're seeing affordability will have improved substantially, you know, from we were seeing $1,000 DAP last year down into the 400s. People will need to buy, but that buying, that ability to pick up the product you need will not result in the 24, 25, 26 period in prices increasing just because there's still plenty of capacity coming online. You know, I mentioned the OCP's capacity. That wasn't even mentioning the Saudi capacity we've got coming. We've got the Tunisians coming. You know, we've got the Kazakhs are still ramping up with their product. The Uzbeks are now making noises and they're bringing, you know, a couple of million tons of capacity online as well for MAP. So yes, demand is improving, but supply is picking up as well again. So it'll be that period of almost. Balance, shall we say, where prices hold pretty steady. You know, to that 23, 24, 25, 26. So beyond 24, there is that respite from continuously falling prices. But 2027 onwards is when we see that revert to firming and it will be great joy for those producers out there. And again, that's partly led by firming raw materials. It's led by the fact that the new capacity really doesn't come online. Much beyond 2027, any firm projects we see in this current business cycle. And also when we go a bit further beyond that, we're seeing also the rock element of it becoming something to be a concern, particularly in relevance to the US we mentioned earlier potentially losing in the early 2030s Israel as a supplier as well. So there is a lot of moving pieces, not just on the, are we having new capacity, is consumption improving? It is turning into that period of raw materials now being a certain driver of prices going upwards as well. So soft again next year, a bit of a respite, a bit of a time of stability, a bit of a reset on the market. And then medium term view, 27, 28 onwards, we'll be back into that reversion to that firming trend in the end.
0: Thank you. So really, the theme is supply-driven pricing. Raw are costs are a key issue. Good to know that the, the pattern you see in terms of pricing going out for the next five years. I would love to have asked you more about China. I haven't had much time to speak about China on the supply side and demand and also in Brazil. I think we'll have to wait for the next podcast to tackle some of those topics. I'd like to just close off by saying to everyone listening, thank you for taking the time. From Clara, Lloyd and from Tim Evans and from myself, we appreciate your interest. If you would like to know more about Argus Process Phosphate Analytics or Argus Phosphate Rock Analytics or even our monthly Process Phosphates Outlook, then please get in touch with any of us or your account manager. We'd be very glad to get you the information you need. And we look forward to tracking the markets and speaking to you next time. Thank you.